Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm Miles Irving. And um, this week we welcome back Mark Lewis, who did uh, a podcast which we call Cactus Calls the Rain, almost exactly this time last year, actually, um, coincidentally. Off the back of our polyvagal series, this is going to be a very mini-series um, of conversations with Mark, in fact. So this week I'm talking at length with him about the the sort of wild food harvesting that, that he's doing there with himself and other members of the, the Pai Pai tribe in in Arizona. And I'm really sort of digging into, you know, how that works, how 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 they got started with it with the um sort of engagement with the local community and how that might reflect um on, you know, a way forward for us to develop more wild food culture. Well, us, I say us, I mean in my context in the UK and other contexts wherever anybody's listening. Um I think there's a lot to draw from Mark's story and experience. So yeah, uh, that's that's this week's conversation. And next week we're going to have David Benjamin Blower, who um, is also a guest from a previous podcast. I think is we called his one uh, "Relinquishing Control," and um, it's especially because David does a lot of work, um, a lot of thinking, and and a lot of his music touches on the issue of you know empire and and colonization and the fact that those of us in um, in some of the developed nations or, you know, post-colonial nations, I should say, really, uh, who are very conscious of, of the, the, the terrible footprints that our ancestors have left in other people's countries and other people's cultures. Yeah, I thought that he'd be a great person to engage with Mark about the um, indigenous experience and, and history there in, in, uh, in North America. So that conversation will, will, will be next week and sort of follow on on this one so yeah i just i just wanted to touch on something else which is the uh the possibility that some of you regular listeners might uh, consider supporting the podcast we've we've had a patreon button for some time uh i've fought shy really of mentioning it too much because you know i don't want to spend lots of time in these introductions or in the in the uh the out, outro of the podcast talking about money but nevertheless you know there are costs to this podcast uh, we're doing it on a shoestring, and really, it's being paid for with, with money from other work that that um that I'm doing essentially. And uh, yeah, I just think um, it'd be worth just putting a shout out. Those of you who are getting something out of the podcast, um, listening on a regular basis, that our, our uh, entry point on Patreon, I think, it's something like five dollars a month, and uh, just just invite you to consider um, signing up to that and um, and just supporting supporting what we're doing in that way. Okay, um, I'm going to keep the introduction brief this week and uh, we'll just get on now to the first of two conversations with Mark Lewis. When uh, you said that in the email about wanting to talk on the, the idea of how, how the community goes forward, yeah. uh, I was just thinking back to some of the things that we did. And it's been now... In our neighborhood, for example, it's been since 2004. Um, could you, Mark, just for the sake of um, everybody listening, could you just talk about your community? Like what? what okay, the, yeah. so we are uh, we're in Arizona, in the uh, valley around Phoenix. We are in a town called Scottsdale, and Scottsdale is considered to be really, really wealthy. 
uh, it's just not where we are. <laughs> We're in southern Scottsdale. And it was pointed out to me by some friends up in northern Scottsdale, which I had never heard these terms before, southern, northern. Uh, she said, uh, oh, it's dangerous down there. You can't walk around at night. And I said, really? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, generally, Southern Scottsdale, the, the population, mostly Native American and uh, Mexican, Latino. Um, some of the properties are, let's just say, depressed. <laughs> yeah. where it would take an awful lot of fix-up uh, to get, some, get them livable. Um, but at the same time, the property values are so much less than further north. I mean, you, you just go a couple of miles north and you're adding 100,000, 200,000 to a house. So it's affordable um, and, it, and they're older houses and you have yards. Uh, whereas further north, everybody's in these little boxes where they have virtually no yard at all. Uh, some of them don't even have common green areas in their their communities. There, there's a lot of little walled communities around here, but we're we're in the old part of town, um, so we're right near Tempe, which is where the university is. We're right next to Tempe Town Lake, um, which is actually the bed of the Salt River that's been turned into a lake. Um, so there's all kinds of water birds down there. We're, we're talking less than a mile from my house, uh, water birds. Peregrine falcons uh, have landed in our yard, uh, herons, uh, ospreys, stuff like that. Um, plus, we're right up against the Salt River Reservation. So, for example, uh, was it yesterday or the night before? Uh, remember that ringtail cat that was on the top of the cactus? Remember that picture? He's the one with the ringtail and the pointy ears and the big eyes. So one of those came in our yard. <laughs> and uh, that was pretty exciting. We, had, we knew that he had been before, but this is the first time we've actually seen him. We, I just the other day took a picture of a coyote in the front yard. <laughs> we have animals coming off the reservation, even though we're in a, in a, uh, a residential area, you know, with streets and, and uh, generally we don't have a lot of sidewalks where we are. Um, it's just the street and then the, the uh, buildings. But um, so, Beginning in 2004, we started living there, and some of our neighbors had no yards to speak of. They were rocks, uh, no trees, no native plants, no nothing plants. Um, and one of the very first things that we did as, as uh, Matichi neighbors, Matichi means like Budinsky, somebody who's getting in other people's business. Um, we would go over to their house and say, here is a uh, we, we went to a plant nursery and we got a whole bunch of trees for uh, bargains because they were either dying or uh, they had a whole bunch of them. Nobody wanted them and they couldn't sell them. So we bought all of these different, mostly uh, native trees that have food value. Yeah. And we went to our neighbors and said, if you plant this, uh, we'll help you take care of it. Um, 
And slowly but surely, what we've got is now an urban forest in our neighborhood because everybody's got all these different plants. Um, our yard, people think, is some kind of jungle um, because it's a food forest, pure and simple. Um, we've got a water feature in there. Our two neighbors on either side, we bash down the walls. There were cinder block walls and we bashed them with hammers. They are ugly as sin. I mean, the, the jaggedy cinder blocks, but the chickens, my neighbor's chickens run through our yard. Um, my dog, and I have a, I have a raven, a pet raven. Uh, he's a, uh, he injured and, and it's a state thing you get a license and we've got a wild tortoise too but anyway you have to have a license to have those things and they, those guys use all three yards our neighbor on uh, Manny on the the reservation side he used to have a giant avocado tree um, a couple so of years I'm back gonna, I'm gonna just interrupt it's just cracking me out because I'm thinking like Somebody listened to you talking, saying, you know, where we live, we've really been breaking down the walls between us and the neighbors. And, yeah. and somebody could say, oh, what a delightful metaphor. And you're like, no, no, it's not a metaphor. We actually took a sledgehammer. And we we actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we, we now have, um, so between the three backyards, it's something like 8,000 square feet. I wow. mean, it's, it's not a small space. And the plants we have our gardens and then larry um the larry, larry's the neighbor on the cul-de-sac side um he's got irrigation in his yard um that flood irrigation uh, most of this neighborhood used to be it's an old old neighborhood so it used to all be flood irrigation but over the years and this happened before we even got there um, some people opted out because they didn't want to pay for the water um, so they all have the capability of having irrigation, but a lot of them haven't had water running through there for years and years. So probably it wouldn't work. Um, but Larry still has actual irrigation, his yard floods, um, and, uh, full of citrus trees. He's got, uh, he, he has show pheasants he he has cages and they're sort of like little forest cages you can't really see into them um but anyway so what we've got now isn't just our yard filled with all kinds of edible plants native plants but the entire neighborhood because we went out and got to know our neighbors instead of taking, you know, wine or or something like that over. We took trees, <laughs> we took plants, and we. Uh, our house is every Thursday is uh, a place, a safe house where the kids can come after school. Um, and and you said you know you eat pizza and stuff. Well, we got to have all of that pizza and stuff like that for those guys because they're not really interested in that. We sneak all kinds of stuff in there. By the way, your birch birch sap is a big hit with the kids. The kids like that. Yeah. Um, I said, well, yeah, it comes from a tree. He says, oh, like the trees in our yard. Well, slightly different tree, <laughs> but but it, it's actually, you know, the liquid inside the tree. And they're like, wow, we're drinking trees. 
And <laughs> so they're excited about that. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and it goes really good with pepperoni pizza, just so you know. Um, so anyway, um, but I think one way to get, and you had mentioned this, um, you said you were putting up little, or were thinking about putting up little signs next to the different plants out and about in the, in the neighborhood. Well, that, that has evolved slightly. What we're, what we're planning to do now is put a little sign, but it'll have a QR code on it. Uh huh. So what we do is, the, lots of us are going to do it in different parts of the country. We're going to we're going to do um, a video standing somewhere where lots of people go. You know, like a really public place, a lot of people walk with some nice edible plants. We stand there and do a video and say, "This is this one. You could do this and mm. and so on." And then we put it online, and then we generate a QR code, and then we. Then we print the QR code out, stick it to a piece of wood, cover it in PVA glue so it's waterproof. Okay. And, and, and just above it, it's saying like, scan me to find out what you can eat here or something. We haven't decided on the wording. And then we bang a post into the ground and with, with that on. So people okay. just walk past, can scan it, and, and they'll, see, they'll see us right where they are at that point. Right. Answer there, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, because yeah, somewhere I saw online, I think it was in Toronto, it was Canadian anyway, um, somebody had made a point of wherever weeds were coming up through the sidewalk, they took chalk. Yeah, 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 it's the same idea, it's the same idea, yeah. Did you yeah. see that? Yeah, well it's funny, yeah. I hadn't heard about that. We, we were talking about doing this and then somebody sent me a link. It's, it's, it's happening everywhere apparently, it's in France, yeah. Yeah, everywhere, yeah. Yeah. So at my farm, which is where I am now, <laughs> um, back in the bowels of the farmhouse, um, the I have little signs, little, you know, primitive <laughs> that I <laughs> just, you know, little placard signs. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a, there are trails because I don't want people stepping on everything. Um, stay on the trail for God's sakes. And, uh, and I have those little signs. And uh, we were getting ready to, the first time people would have seen those signs would have been that dinner in February. I invited you, remember? And then COVID killed that off. Yeah, that was just right when COVID, I mean, because the families said, well, we're kind of worried about our kids coming to a crowded place. So, because we do get, you know, a couple hundred people. Um, so, so those signs haven't been tested yet, but they're, they're just little metal signs. So each one tells you a little bit about the plant. And then um, there are uh, website links and stuff, but I, I hadn't thought of the QR code thing. So now that makes sense. I'll have to have to figure out another thing to figure out. <laughs> Oh, we'll let you know exactly how it works out in practice. Yeah. We, okay. we, yeah. All right. Well, anyway, but I could see that would be a really good, um, even people who were just walking through your neighborhood who didn't know you um, could attach to something like that and learn some stuff. Yeah. And then if you had some other information, um, on the website about classes or something like that, <clears throat> then maybe, you know, you could get, and then make sure 
I mean, like, our communities are easy because uh, there's a ton of old people. This is why we're so concerned about coronavirus, because a lot of natives are old <laughs> and they, they know everything. And so whenever we need to have a class on, on darn near anything, we've got old people, you know, pull out the old people. And, uh, but you could, and we pay them. See, that's the thing. We pay them to teach these classes yeah. so that they have an income and they'll want to do it. I mean, because not every old person wants to hang around with a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of dummies who don't know stuff, you know. Um, it's, it's kind of a bother. Um, but get the old people involved, get the little kids involved. That's the, uh, when, when we did the trees, we always made sure that the, the kids, you know, like, here, dig this, <laughs> dig in there. <laughs> Doesn't matter right now, you know, how nice it looks. Just dig a hole, right? Okay. Make a mess. And, uh, always get as many different uh, generations involved as possible uh, in all the different projects. And so we've done this uh, bringing in trees and native plants five or six times now. Um, and again, the whole neighborhood is, is, it's very different as a result. I look at the pictures uh, compared to when we moved in, when we moved into our house, the backyard was um, dirt and, you know, cinder blocks. And there were the remains of an alley that was made out of asphalt because our yard is actually two lots. Uh, Larry's yard is two lots. Manny's yard is two lots. And in between the two, there was an alley that the garbage guys used to drive through. Um, but that's all blocked off. Uh, so one of the things we had to do was get rid of all that asphalt. And uh, now people come to the backyard and they're like, oh my God, is this Eden? Where, <laughs> where are Adam and Eve? <clears throat> because it's super lush and lots of stories, lots of, of uh, under and over story, um, stuff under stuff. Uh, this year we discovered some things we didn't even know were there <laughs> and they've been growing for some time. Um, uh, a cactus with a, a trike cactus with a yellow flower on it. I mean, just amazing plant. Um, it's growing next to some irises, completely impossible. You know, irises are super wet, cacti are super dry, but there they are growing right next to each other under a mesquite tree way in the back. Where you can't see it and uh, so I would say just real small stuff to get started um, the thing with the signs and then pull in and then build off of that pull in those kids and pull in those old people <laughs> do you have a community center there's a village hall and uh, yeah we've been eyeing up a village hall can they have classes there? Yeah, we could definitely do it. We were thinking of doing it and then the lockdown happened. So we thought, okay, we've got to teach without being face to face. And that's where this video idea came up. Cause we thought, well, you know, we just put a QR code. People can watch us talking about stuff and we don't have to be anywhere near them. We, we were here last week, you know, we're not here. 
at some point, people are going to want to go out and, and touch these things. Yeah. And unless they're with somebody who does it, yeah. they won't feel comfortable. That's my, when I do walk and talks and stuff, hmm. they, I think to myself, why am, why do I have to do all this handholding? <laughs> why can't you just go do it? Here's some pictures. Uh, I'll put numbers on the map so you know where you have to go and you'll see the plant. And still, it's not as good to them as when a person is there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I know what you mean. It may be that this, this, this idea, um, mostly just gets people interested and, and then they need, they need somebody physically there to take them the next step. But the idea is that lots of people do this Mark in lots of different places. And that as a result, they'll recognize me or whoever else it is in their area. And they'll say, Hey, you're the person I saw on that video could, could ask you some questions, you know? And it's, that's the idea is to kind of not just introduce them to the plants, but introduce them to the fact that they have someone in their area that is able to, to, uh, to help them learn this stuff. You know? um, neighborhood forager, something like that. You know? okay. Well, be careful that you don't turn into the, <laughs> the celebrity, <laughs> the celebrity forager. Yeah. Right. Well, I think it's, you know, in a, in a small neighborhood, that's, that's the idea, just people that see you anyway. And um, yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, um, I don't know. I just think, you know, like when we were at school, we had this thing that the, the, they show you the policeman and the fireman and the, and the, uh, and the milkman, you know, and these are the members of your community that, that, <clears throat> that are here for you, you know. And I feel it's ridiculous that all these foragers are going around incognito, you know. Yeah. We're actually here with a function. We're here with a role to play, which is to introduce people to their plants. But nobody knows who we are, and unless we start just hassling people on the street. <laughs> well, that's the reason the chefs, have, at least around here, have been able to take credit you know, for all the foraging and the knowledge and stuff is because they never clue you in, you know, if you're eating there, they never clue you into the fact that there's a bunch of people that went out and got this stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know. Um, that whole celebrity stuff, I, I'm sure I, I'm put, I'm, shrinking away from it more and more kind of thing um exactly. uh, got a job to do you know you don't you, you know but sometimes more people knowing who you are means you can do your job more effectively i think it's all it's all about like what is your motive for wanting to people to to to, to know who you are you know it's as simple as that if, if it's because you, you you know you're actually inwardly feeling slightly inadequate and you're slightly doubting you have a right to exist you know and you think that everybody thinks that thinks that you're great because your name's on the internet and whatever it's going to make you feel better you know if you're that kind of person you you should be steering clear of of of, of any kind of celebrity but like mark if we want to get a job done yeah we do need to communicate to large numbers of people you know and and if we do have some kind of pivotal level of knowledge <clears throat> we we need to get it out there and 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 i just i just think we just need to do the do do the grass the groundwork you know of of not being you know, just not being narcissistic and, and, and just <laughs> dealing with our fundamental inadequacies, you know, so that we're, we're not hungry for that. We're not hungry for people to go, you know, Mars is amazing. Mark is amazing. Oh, you know, 
<laughs> That's the tendency for that. It seems it, we've all got the tendency. All, but, I see it all the time, you know. But, they, they, people start believing what people say about them, kind yeah. of thing. So rubbish, you know. You get introduced. I've been I've been introduced as like a master forager, and all this kind of, <laughs> I think this is just bullshit, you know. Like <laughs> I just know a few plants because I got curious. It doesn't make. Do you know what I mean? It's just that. Anyway, it's just we all should know that the only thing that you deserve any credit for is, 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 is if you're decent, you know. I mean, that's, you know, and, 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 and you know. How, um, <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get a feel for, okay, so your area, all right, Arizona, um, obviously we're in the city, so it's probably as crowded as any city would be. Um, but as soon as you get to the edge of, where the houses are, it's, it's either completely desert that's never been changed, uh, and, and you can go for 100 miles and there's no people, right? Um, or it's old farmland um, yep. that is coming back kind of thing, which is still vacant. It's still empty, so there aren't people there. England is small. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys have any spaces that are like nice big where you can like okay when i go down to see my family in baja there's one place where you can actually stand still you can stand there even now um and look and it's about 200 kilometers you're you're able to see if it's a clear day and everything um all the way over to the the uh, uh gulf mm. And there's no towns, there's no roads, there's no nothing there. You can see all of that. And there's no people. Um, anywhere like that in England? Yeah, well, less so in England, but like we, the moors are quite um, big spaces. Is that near you? The, no, there's nothing like that quite near us. But there's, there's um, the, the, the moorlands, which are like... They've mostly been sort of ruined by agriculture a long time ago, and and it's very acidic soil, so it's covered in. Um, well, if you're lucky, you might get a bit of uh, blueberry there, wild blueberry or wild cranberry or that sort of thing, but it's mostly covered in sheep. So, um, so <laughs> what? Just a pile of sheep? I mean, <laughs> sheep. no, but <laughs> sheep, sheep eating the, the the useful plants is is, is the problem. So there's a lot of heather and, and, and uh, sort of rough grass and that sort of thing. But in Scotland, I mean, you can look at the map in Scotland and see that there are no roads, you know, like whereas everywhere else is just a grid of roads, right. landscape. But there's big areas of Scotland where you can go for miles and, and, and you're not on a road. But again, that's more land. Um, okay. So it's quite monotonous, the landscape um, in those places. But we've got quite a lot of... Um, sort of forest, we've got a reasonable amount of forest, especially in the bit of Kent where I am. Um, so you can go and wander around in the forest and get lost. Um, um, still lots of tracks running through it and so on, but yeah. yeah. Well, you could start some kind of project where you build little ponds and put your reed mace in there. Yeah. Bring the birds and stuff, mm. right? Remember, I, I think I sent you an article that somebody was going through and clearing out 
what in the past had been little little water areas. Remember? I sent that. I don't remember what part of England that was, but um, basically they're bringing back all these little ponds for the migratory birds. Um, and one of the things that they make sure that they bring back is reed mace. Yeah, fantastic. Keep the water open. Mm. Um, here, what it is, is um, you can go ahead and have this worthless, stupid weed. Um, because we don't want it because it's covered with dog pee. The attitude toward us when, when people see us is, I mean, even homeless people. Yeah, homeless people came. We were, we were pulling Palo Verde. Beautiful, beautiful Palo Verde. And uh, the woman came over and she said, is this something? <laughs> I said, yes, it is. <laughs> and we let her taste it. And she said, oh my gosh, that's so good. And I said, look, the whole tree is covered with them. And the two guys that were with her said, come on, we got to get over to the 7-Eleven before, you know, 7-Eleven is like uh Yeah, yeah, we have it here, yeah. Oh, okay. So we got to get over to the 7-Eleven before it closes uh, and get some food. And I'm like, the whole tree is food. <laughs> and she, she reluctantly left, but, but the attitude was, well, the only thing that's food is the stuff that's in the wrappers yeah and um so they're more than happy to let us have all of that garbage <laughs> and that's how they look at it as garbage well you're clearing um, up the mess when it falls off the tree aren't you it's just yeah. well and they actually say that they say oh i hate that tree it's just so messy I said, that's food <laughs> it's food there um i don't remember the guy's name but you interviewed him he uh is in berkeley and he has dinners and he, he said in in uh either something he wrote or actually in the interview with you was that they had a farmer's market remember this they had a farmer's market and they had a booth and they had a whole bunch of greens of different kinds dandelions and lamb's quarter and stuff like that yeah, yeah, yeah. and right behind them in somebody's yard was growing the very same stuff and nobody would touch it but they would buy the stuff at the market because it was in a bag yeah, and yeah. it said on it dandelion or whatever it's been and sanctified by the holy bag it must be right the holy bag <laughs> so maybe that's the first step get everybody to make bags and <laughs> we just pop it in and we go there you go it's safe now it's, it's been in safe. the bag yeah, yeah, the bag. Um, so yeah, that'd be a fun project for the kids to make the bags and, <laughs> and then put all the put Just all put of the for a minute, and then it'll be yeah. safe to eat. Yeah, yeah, it's perfectly fine now because I I moved it four inches over here and put it in this bag. <laughs> anyway, um, we we've got people who who make the foraged foods into something. Okay, so we've got this variety of different chefs, okay? And some of them <clears throat> want everybody to think that these are rare, exotic ingredients that yeah. they know how to work with. But you've also got native chefs and the way their approach to it, which turns out to be the same thing as far as I can tell is, we're native chefs 
and we know how to work with them and you white people do not. So let us make this nice meal for you, uh, an expression of our identity. You couldn't possibly do this, white people. And, and I'm thinking to myself, that is the same argument as the other guys. It's an exotic, weird thing. Um, so maybe um, with slightly better credentials, but it's 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 uh, it's still the it's still yeah. putting a distance between the people and the food, and that isn't how the food always was when I was a kid. There's a guy who uh, uh, Nephi Craig. He's a, a chef from White Mountain Apache, and uh, from White River, and he has he was one of the up and coming native chefs in North America. I mean, he started the North American uh, native chef organization and everything. So he knows a lot of people and everything. And everyone says, well, why have you backed away? We never hear from you. We never see you. The restaurant that you had, you closed it. He said, well, I'm trying to do something real now. Yeah. He said, it's real nice, real nice having a leaf on a plate <laughs> that costs a thousand dollars. Um, but our community can't eat that. That's, that's not the way we're going to go. So he is now doing community stuff, um, growing, you know, they're working on growing, um, native crops. They're working on foraging. They're working on traditional, uh, harvesting methods and stuff like that up in white river. And, um, somebody interviewed him by phone and, uh, he said, well, what we decided was um, we look at the way that, you know, the high-end chefs are, are presenting our stuff has nothing to do with us. It's not our traditions. It's not our, I mean, it's our ingredients, but they are just using them like, you know, passion fruit from here or whatever it is. Uh, so that they can say they have these unusual ingredients and, and these are different flavors and how nice and everything like that. But that has nothing to do with us. He said, sadly, what we finally come to realize is that mainstream society wants uh, Native American foods and all of the splendor and the sophistication that these things provide they just don't want the dirty, smelly Native Americans <laughs> to get them out of the picture. Yeah. I heard a guy uh, who's, he's African and he's in New York City somewhere. And he said almost the exact same thing. He said, um, I could spend a lot of time trying to open up a restaurant here with Senegalese food and everything instead of doing pop-ups like I'm doing now. But it seems to me that really what the people want is you know, some interesting flavors, and they don't really want to know anything about us. There may be, and I'm not sure we're not the first people who figured this out, but there may be some very, very distinct differences in the way, difference between the way Native people bring up their kids yep. versus the way mainstream kids get brought up because when I introduce people to Pai Pai kids 
even to uh, like the Autumn kids who live here um, and they they have cell phones and they you know they do Instagram and they all of that stuff the first thing that people say is they're so quiet <laughs> why are they so quiet and I said oh yeah if you uh, if you leave them alone in a room you'll see, <laughs> you'll see how quiet they are um, they can get into just as much trouble um, and usually a lot more because they're they're willing to explore stuff but but I did it seems to me the way you socialize kids when they're little is very very different from at least other people's kids that I see in public so for example um, Haley when she was little um, she wanted she would watch everything that everybody did she's always watching sitting there watching quietly and I remember one time uh, something fell between the counter, big heavy counter, which is hard to move, and the stove. And she automatically just, she couldn't talk yet. She automatically gestured for me to give her the oven mitt. She put it on her hand and then she stuck her hand in there and used the oven mitt, you know, her hands inside the oven mitt, but used it to pull the thing out from between. And I just said to her, without even thinking, um, wow, I wish my hand was little enough that I could do that. And I could see the pride on her face. Because here's something that she could help me with that I couldn't have done myself. <laughs> because she had paid attention that we always told her danger danger at the stove because it's hot but she's going to need this tool right <laughs> she's, but she had it all worked out and instantly and I said you know thank you um, and then she went off you know very happy um, she used to always want to do the dishes she did a horrible job <laughs> she did a horrible Horrible job, but we let her. We we encouraged her to you know grab that footstool and drag it over there and climb up and do it. And little kids get in the habit in our families. Little kids get in the habit of, well, mom and dad are tired. I gotta help them. I need to help them. And we constantly praise them even when they do a crappy job because they're trying to help us it's clear that you know that's the goal and we want to encourage that so by the time a kid is you know seven or eight they're used to the idea of well i'm gonna i'm gonna start dinner you know i'm gonna go cut up these vegetables because that's what i see mom does and she's not home yet you know six bus rides <laughs> to get from her job to home um so let's just help her out here. And mainstream kids spend all their time whining about stuff. <laughs> they, they want whatever it is they don't have, it seems. Um, and they just kind of get slapped down a lot. Um, and I thought, you know, by the time they're six or seven years old, they're useless. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, it's amazing that you said that. I was just thinking, Mark saying all this stuff, this is an excellent preamble to my favorite rant about modern children, which is, why are modern children useless? Yeah, exactly. They're trained to be of no use whatsoever. Well, and they're, they're not even required to be useful, let alone enter their head that they could be. And if they try to be, they're, they're knocked around and told, well, you know, the terrible job kind of thing. Instead of, well, okay, you, you cut the head off of that one and we didn't want that to happen, but, <laughs> but let's have you try it on this one over here. You know, um, they, have to, they have to be sort of encouraged to realize that there are things that we need them for, <laughs> right? They need to do work. They're, we still want them to play. We want them to go explore and stuff like that. But, but if, if I want firewood, I, I tell the kid, go out and get firewood. I need like, you know, four armfuls and hurry it up. <laughs> we got stuff to do. And, uh, and they do it. Um, and little kids spend a lot of time watching when they're really little. Um, and we expect them to. We expect them to get in there. And I mean, I remember uh, it was a festival and um, I was watching this lady uh, make a basket and little kids were watching her make this basket. And somebody said, you know, come on, we have to go to this one little kid. And um, I said, well, how's he going to learn how to do it if he can't watch? And she was like, mind your own business <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but the lady who was doing the basket was sitting there nodding. I could tell she knew you gotta, you gotta let the kids hang around and before they can do anything, hang around and watch uh, without doing anything, without being questioned, without being quizzed or, or asked anything. They just have to watch. And at some point, they will decide that they want to try to do it. And then you got to let them, even though they suck. I mean, they're really bad. They, they do more damage than anything else. But you let them do that until they... Well, I think, I think, it's, I think it's half the reason people don't. They, just, they, they say, well, it's more work to, you know, it'd be easier if I did it myself, that kind of thing. And, and there's no thought about the investment that you're making. Well, there you go. That's what it is. It's an investment. Um, a lot of people, a, a friend of mine was asking me, well, what's the difference between white people and ages? And I said, well, white people can't be bothered. That's, that's the summary right there. They can't be bothered. Um, it's just easier to do this, right? That's why they don't forage. It's easier. I mean, who would do that? Who would forage if all you got to do is go to the grocery store and grab the magic bag? Yeah. all you got to do is something you hate to get money and then right money and you can yeah do something so so it's the the lack of investment i mean the infrastructure isn't the only thing falling apart in this country it, it's the relationships right nobody the kids are locked in their rooms i guess playing video games and Nevertheless, I will be using some of them to help me with these QR codes, <laughs> but, but um, I don't know. The, uh, I told you things were upside down here. 
that's part of the problem. You know, it's, it's, uh, but the native communities are finally coming back because we can point and say, look at that. <laughs> look at that over there. That problem family right there. See that? We aren't that. We don't want to be that. Let's go for it. Mm -hmm. um, during lockdown, we went out most of the time. I mean, uh, twice we were stopped by the police who said that if we left town, maybe we, by the time we got back, we wouldn't be allowed back in. And I said, oh, please. <laughs> how, would you, how would you even know we were coming back? <laughs> you don't have anybody on the road. It's too big. Everything's too big. <clears throat> but but uh, it's very helpful to be able to point, you know. And, and so you're going to have to find an enemy to vilify. That's what Americans are really good at. Right now, it's going to be China. I think pretty soon it'll be somebody else, right? We ran Russia went down the toilet, so we can't vilify them anymore because they're they're stupid. <laughs> their their economy is garbage. So, but now China, you know, is starting to become, you know, self sufficient and taking care of their people. So we can't have that. <laughs> we need we need to be able to point at some enemy, right? Um, so get yourselves an enemy okay um, and make sure they're not somebody that forages okay because that's what those that's what those people did to you right the police they they pointed hey hey uh middle class or or uh, working class brit this guy this miles guy is stealing all these wonderful plants oh you've never heard of the plants Oh, they, they dogs pee all over them? Doesn't matter. They're yours. <laughs> you didn't know that they were yours? Well, they, they are, and you can't let him take them, right? Never mind, you're not doing anything with them, <laughs> right? That's what they did to you, right? Yeah, pretty much. It's, it's, it's like vilification of, um, I mean, I'm not sure they were saying we we're really stealing the plants. They were saying, you know, you know nature is very, very... Uh, very fragile and miles is breaking it that's the, what, does that, what does that mean well My, it's, what, mean, it's okay what's her name with the chimps what uh, jane goodall goodall yeah yeah she says the chimps are you know pretty resilient <laughs> creatures um what is this fragile nature crap i just don't i mean it's like it's a, an orchid or something. And well, it's part of a mindset, you know, and, and, and you guys know that, that like the, you know, the, the national parks and so on, where you are, is, is just the same mindset, right? So they, right. They, they're like, we're going to have this pristine wilderness untouched by human hands. Uh-huh. Never mind they threw all the Indians out of them. Well, there's this story about John Muir sending a photographer in when they were trying to do the, the, the press and everything when Roosevelt said, you, you know, we're going to have this national park. And the photographer had to stand there until the, uh, the, the native women finished what they were doing for the day yeah. and got out of shot so that right. he could take a picture of this pristine wilderness untouched by human hands. Right. <laughs> the Miwok people, yeah. There is now a Miwok restaurant in San Francisco, the, the descendants of those people. Um, and they tell that story over and over. Yeah, they... It was a pristine environment where that they threw us out of, so that <laughs> so that they yeah. could point at the elk and the and the eagles and stuff and say this is you know 
God made this, <laughs> this environment. Mm. We can't touch it, right? And, and here we God made it with a little help from his friends, right? And, and his friends are still here. So, um, yeah. We're... Too, slop too sloppy. They're dirty, smelly Indians. I read that Muir was quite a racist. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could he have done that if he wasn't racist? My goodness. No. Yeah, but he actually said stuff like, you know, dirty, no, smelly Indians. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. But look, but the, point, the point that I'm making, Mark, is that this is the roots of the conservation movement globally, yeah? So, you know. Well, but you, you're, you're gonna have to change that. <laughs> well, I'm trying, Mark, trust me. <laughs> well, really up. You've already been at it for how many years? <laughs> well, you know, we've, we've, just, we've just dared to stand and contradict it, you know? The basic point is that, that this, this uh, fortress conservation is like saying, well, you know, we've screwed it up most places, but we're gonna fence off this area here, you know? But and, and, and make sure that you know, no, no nasty humans can get in and ruin this bit, unless they're conservationists, in which case they can do what they like, and, 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 and there we are. But in the meantime, we don't care that everywhere else is still destroyed and, you know, like, so um, it, it's just these little bits that we're trying to protect. So I'm kicking over the sacred cow by going into those little bits and being a human, um, and being being a, a biological organism that engages with that landscape as if it was food, you know, rather than it, rather than it being like a, a museum or an art gallery yeah. where we can look but not touch the exhibits, you know. Yeah. Um, but but it, it all boils down to the fact that that, that the ethnic cleansing has been at the root of um, of, of uh, conservation, like w whether it's whether it's in in your country or in 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 Africa, they 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 threw the Maasai off massive areas. The some of the first national parks there in Kenya, exactly the same story. And, yeah. and this is the mindset, you know, that, 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 and, and, and the man in the street gets confused because the industrial human is what's caused all this environmental devastation. And I'm not him. I'm, I'm being, it's a case of mistaken identity. I'm not that guy. I'm going in there and doing something very gentle which is which is uh, which is part of the the, the ongoing ecology. You know, let's call it. I'm a species, and I'm eating another species. So let's get you some kind of outfit, you know, like a green, green man, and get some magic bags that you can wave around in front of you, and put the. Abracadabra! <laughs> it's food That's now. Right. The magic. Yeah. Uh, you're you're just not enough Hollywood here. Um, <laughs> Well, there, there's a, um, I can't remember his name, but uh, he's passed away now. And uh, somebody asked him back in the 1960s, uh, oh, the white people came and they, they took all your buffaloes and they, they took all your, your grassland and they took all these and they, they put up a nuclear power plant and they did all this other stuff and they're just... Uh, destroying everything and they're they're killing all your people and people all have diabetes and they're all drunk and they're all and and it looks like the the white man's finally going to wipe you out and the, the indian guy says uh well it's only been 200 years it's a little too early to tell yet <laughs> what's gonna happen <laughs> i agree and that was in the 60s. Now think about where we've come since the 60s. Back in the 60s, uh, reservations were being um, 
basically canceled. People were being thrown out. Um, it looked really bleak. Uh, Native Americans did not yet have the vote, right? Did not, were not allowed to vote um, until 78, until 1978. The, the Religious Act um, was not, the Native American Religious Act was not in play yet. So you could uh, take children away from the families because they were growing up in a, in an unhealthy uh, anti-social environment. I mean, it, when I think of that, I mean, I can think back to the 1990s when we didn't have a lot of this stuff. And people say, oh, well, you know, the mistreatment, that was all history. And I said, well, how far back are you thinking? Yeah, in Arizona, the last, um, it was the middle of the night, I think it was like 96 was the, they used to be able to go in and raid the, the casinos and steal all the machines. The state did that several times. Um, and now, okay, this, this blows me away. Um, with COVID, you've got all these different employers. A lot of them are restaurants and stuff, and they're having a real tough time. Um, but interestingly, the restaurants over on the reservation all of the people are employed. Uh, they're not at the restaurant, but they're being employed because the community is the important thing. So <clears throat> these are people who are not part of the tribe or they're not even native at all, but they are recognized as members of the community. And so they need to be supported both financially, insurance, all these different things uh, during this difficult time. Meanwhile, here's this other restaurant right over the line, right over the line. It's an Italian restaurant. And the guy, <clears throat> he was complaining in the newspaper. Um, and he said, uh, all of, I, I let all my people go. He furloughed all of his employees. And now that things are opening up, they don't want to come back to work for him. A lot of them have looked for and found other jobs. And he said, you think you know some people? We were like family. And I'm thinking, well, you don't throw your whole family out on the street just because it's tough for you right now. Um, but he's incensed at these people um, because essentially they did what they had to to survive. Mm. And that is a big difference. If you just put those two examples next to each other of how to how to think about community and everything. Um, so you're all Brits right there, <laughs> right? Yeah. You're all Brits. Um, so you're kind of all family. I mean, I don't, and get those old people that, you know, you stuffed into little boxes somewhere. Uh, their families thought, well, it's just be easier to stick them in a home or something. Uh, and get these kids that are a pain in the butt, because that's what kids are, <laughs> and, and get them together around the idea of this is our land, this is our town, these are our her this is our heritage, these are our plants. Yeah. Um, let's bring it back. 
So um, I was trying to dig around in, into, you know, how do you manage to keep your culture going around the wild foods and that, and how that might be a useful thing for those of us who don't have that culture at all, or are just trying to get it going back. And um, so, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to just t- talk about more of that really, Mark, because um, yeah, we need help. And, uh, <laughs> have you got old people? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've got old people and young people. So the yeah, thing, right. what, okay. what I, what I, you know, you know um, that's, that's what you told me last week, go and talk to the young people and, and take them to talk to the young, the old people and maybe we'll get it going. But, um, you know, I'm just trying to get it going in my own household, really, first of all. And one of the things I want to talk to you about was what, what, what is, um, you know, what does it look like in your household or, or in your, uh, with, with other people that you go harvesting with? Because, you know, it's one thing to harvest, isn't it? But um, like I was sharing with you in an email last week, I've got a backlog of things that I've harvested. I'm quite good at that bit. Um, I'm not quite so good at the getting it all processed. Once it's all nice and dry and in the attic, I can forget about it. And, and then we still end up eating pasta instead of eating uh, something made from the chestnuts that we harvested or whatever. But I mean, yeah. that's a big, that's a big, um, that's a big part of the deal, isn't it? That, you know, you harvest together, but somehow or another there's got to be a, a thing where people gather together and, and process, which you do that, right? So. You don't give or everybody a job. You it yourself. Do you end up processing it all on your own? What happens? No, no. Um, you give people jobs. Okay. Right? Um, especially the kids seem to jump into that more than anybody else. Um, basically, you tell them, okay, look, you're responsible for this. If it's screwed up, <laughs> we're all going get, to get at you. We're all going to be mad at you. So... Um, Everybody's got jobs. I mean, really, it is. I don't. I don't see, especially the littlest kids. The littlest kids are way better than the older kids. As the kids get to be, uh, uh, and it's only in the last couple of years, um, they get to be the age where they want to sit there with the phone <laughs> and do, you know, thumb generation stuff. Do you know that? Do you know that terminology, thumb generation? Yeah, it's, on the uh, I think it's originally from Japan. Um, Ubisoft, the the kids, all they do is sit there and twiddle their, you know, move their thumbs, and so they're the thumb generation. When they get to that age, it can be a little difficult if they haven't, up till then, had this experience of oh well I on this trip I got to do this right this is my job on this trip right yeah. um, so it could be that they are gonna go I mean you'll just say to them okay look we're not gonna have a fire unless you go get that firewood we won't have a fire nobody will be able to do anything everybody's gonna be mad at you so go out there and get that wood and when they're really little, they're not good at stuff. And you just have to kind of put up with that um, and give them time. They'll give up too easy, and then you'll have to go out there with them and say, now, see, I'll, you find the wood and I'll carry it kind of thing. But um, 
you you got to get them engaged and when they're really little they want to do stuff at least that's our experience um they want to help mom and dad they can see it <laughs> mom and dad work a lot so um what can i do to help mom and dad and and the little kids will actually start cooking they'll do it uh because they've been watching you They've been sitting there when they're littler and watching you and watching you and watching you. And uh, so it's not a, it's not a punitive thing. They, they, you know, maybe sometimes I know you, you goad them with, well, I don't know if you would do a good job because you want them to do it, right? this reverse psychology thing i don't know you don't i you probably wouldn't do very good then the kid wants to show you that they could um but it also helps to have other kids because when one kid's doing it the other kids just automatically are going to do it you don't have to do anything you don't have to say anything so, miles i think i heard on some of your podcast that you have four kids all together yeah yeah and some of them are older than the other ones that's and, right yeah. and um, aren't the little ones trying to do the stuff that the older kids are oh no the older kids are long gone mark they're they're like 30 and oh. 32 so yeah or 29 and 30 oh. yeah. yeah well then you're gonna have to find in your neighborhood you're gonna have to find a whole bunch of kids yeah different ages yeah, because little kids are going to want to do what the older kids are trying to do. Yeah. So you get those older kids to do stuff, right? And another thing you could do is if you've got the old people, you could have the old people kind of assigned to a kid or the other way around, right? And have like these teams and it it's not like a competition or anything, but there is sort of a, a dynamic where the some people will try to be better than other people and it might be generated by the older person or by the kid yeah. but you get them you get them okay so these these people here are gonna uh, they're gonna make the desserts and these people here are gonna make the, the antipasto or whatever you know the salad these people here are gonna and i mean when we have these dinners that's exactly what happens now it's kind of gotten out of hand um the, at the dinners the the uh people are trying to outdo each other with how spectacular their <laughs> their contribution is um that it looks better tell david that the, the dinners that you're talking about is when people in the community get together and you've got um, all the wild foods and some other foods that you then cook and eat together. This is the regular one that you do with the local people. Uh, we have that six times a year. Um, did I, I sent you a menu, right, Miles? You've sent me several menus. Last, last week we discussed the menu for the big, um, the one where lots of people came from all over the place. Yeah, um, but you've sent me other ones where it, it looks like you know eighty percent of the food is stuff you've foraged and it's right. a, yeah a lot of wild stuff in that one. 
And for a lot of the people, they still are learning how to, how to use that stuff. Um, yeah. We've, we had a, I mean, let's face it, uh, most of the native people here, the different tribes, have come through a period of time where the mainstream society was trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. <laughs> and they're lucky that they made it through at all. And so a lot of things were forgotten. Um, a lot of people were just barely surviving or you know, they didn't have food really at all. So a lot of things have to be relearned at this point. Um, the harvesting, the cooking, um, all of it. Um, so we sit uh, with both adults and with kids teaching them how to do stuff. Right. People come over to our house to see what it is that we're doing with the crazy food. <laughs> but, sure, but when you're doing that, what your starting point is so different from ours. That's true. Because like you guys, you still have a, a sense of belonging to a community and, and being together and, and, and that kind of solidarity that you have. And you have well, a sense yeah the reason we have that is because we still have the experience of people trying to wipe us off the face of the earth these protests that are happening right now aren't about history they're about last week right native people being refused service native people being excluded from uh water negotiations so that I mean, the, the, the Gila River Reservation is just south of us here, and they didn't get their water back until this year. I mean, this is who for took farming it? people. Hmm? Who took it? I don't know the story. Oh, <laughs> okay. So just yesterday in the 1880s, when, <laughs> when the... Um, White settlers got here. The first thing they did was mine. They went mining for gold and all kinds of different things. Mm -hmm. And they used all that up. Okay, so then uh, let's bring in a bunch of cattle and sheep and we'll graze the crap out of everything so nothing will grow. And they did that. Oh gosh, what we got now? Lumber, let's cut down the forests. <laughs> let's take care of that, right? Use that all up, okay? And then finally, uh, we need to have a control of this water. So they dammed up all the rivers and took the water away. And the Gila River, those people have been farming for 5,000 years, uh, irrigation farming. And so for them, it was life or death uh, because everything else had been taken and now they take the water. And so think about it, the end of the 1800s until now, they haven't had for sure secure sources of water and now they do. And this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. Um, the Fort McDowell people, the Yavpai people, they're related to my family, Pai Pai. Um, their situation was different. The, the city of Phoenix, which wouldn't even exist without the Fort McDowell community having been there first. Um, but the city of Phoenix, uh, back in the 1970s, wanted to build a dam called the Ormi Dam. And that dam would have completely inundated their entire reservation, which they didn't even get until the 1960s. Um, but it would have 
put the whole thing underwater. And Phoenix back then was, was you know, gung-ho, let's grow, <laughs> everything, you know. Um, and the people had to fight. It's the first time. It's the first time that the people really fought and won. Uh, so every year in November, they have Ormy Day <laughs> when they celebrate not being drowned <laughs> by the, this dam. So this thing with the water, uh, it's a big deal around here. Everything, you know, depends on water. And uh, a lot of different histories are tied to that water. You know, take the water away, drown the people with a dam, whatever, whatever it takes. <laughs> whatever it takes. So the there are still generations that are alive that um, just barely that can remember this stuff, right? Back in the 1990s, when the people started to, uh, I mean, they believed President Nixon and they said, um, we will have sovereignty and we will have our own businesses. And then the state moved in and actually shut them down. Shut down the, because they were casinos. The, the native people had casinos and they were very successful. The Apache people had lumber and ski resorts and those were shut down. I mean, the 1990s is not that long ago. And so when, when people protested on Sunday, what you saw was just this across the board, Muslims, um, I think I sent you pictures, uh, Muslims, Native Americans, African Americans, Latinos, Asians, it was everybody, uh, gay people, just everybody is sick <laughs> of, of the way that things are. Um, and it's yesterday, it's really yesterday. Mm. So when, if I want to rally folks uh, for solidarity, it's not hard to do <laughs> because everybody can say like, I mean, just when the COVID started, my wife and I, we were in the car and we were stopped. I think I emailed you about that, right? Mm -hmm. We were, stopped, we were stopped by the police. Oh, where, what do you think you're doing? What he said was, uh, well, there goes a police cruiser right there. Probably wondering what I'm doing here. Um, <laughs> anyway, the, uh, you know, he said, uh, where, do you, where do you think you're going? <laughs> like that. And I, I'm thinking, okay, let's see. This is still the United States. This is just a street. I'm riding along, um, and he said, well, the policeman said, uh, well, uh, you really shouldn't leave the city because everything may be closed down and you won't be able to come back into the city. And I'm thinking, okay, how would that even be possible? How would that work <laughs> with all these roads? How would they, you know, have a policeman on every single road? And then how would they actually prevent people? It, it's just nuts. Um, but I mean, I've been here on this parking lot early, early in the morning as the sun is coming up and I've had people, the police stop me. You know, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, getting ready for a farmer's market, 
right? I've got these keys right here, <laughs> the stuff that's down in the storage unit. So I had to, I had to show him, I had to prove to him that uh, these keys open those locks. So it's not hard <laughs> for us. It seems to me it should be easy for you. I mean, England's, England's got like 360 dialects. Every, every 10 meters, you've got a different people, essentially, right? Nobody speaks that RP stuff all the time, right? It's, you've got all those villages, right? Should be easy to, to like rally people around their little village, no? It's not? Well, we've, we've only just really made this the focus to try and get the thing across to the local context here. You have to bear in mind, I've been running around after high-end chefs, making sure they have what they need for the last nearly uh, The pound, the big pound. <laughs> well, not really. I mean, firstly, we haven't made any money. And, and secondly, we thought that was where the where the where the good stuff was at you know let's influence the high end of the culture yeah. and see if that trickles down. Spread the word. Yeah. You know, which which to a certain extent it has you know the 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 chefs have put the seal of approval on this stuff to say it's not garbage you know they've said this this stuff has some value it has some interest but um, the average person they do anything with it yet well no but the fact is they've seen all of these chefs on telly and in the newspapers and so on, Noma and whatnot, and you know even the Fat Duck, has a, which is which is a the, the the fanciest restaurant in the UK probably, they use seaweed and things like that. So they they are they are um, influential, and and they they have they have changed how people see it now. So people know you know, ten years ago if I'd have been out foraging down at the salt marsh like I was a couple of weeks back somebody walks past, some people would have said, you know, 10 years ago, oh, do you mind if I ask what you're doing? Because they'd have no idea. They, they wouldn't have a concept that, that we were trying to get food or something. Now, people ask us what we're picking. They know we're after food. And, and some of them walk past and you just overhear them saying, yeah, we should go on a foraging course. You know? So the, 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 um, the understanding of the fact that you can go out there and gather food is much, much higher now. Most people have a concept of it. And they don't think it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, they don't think it's a sort of low life thing to do. I mean, I remember relatives of mine would come up to me at family gatherings, like funerals or weddings or something. And I haven't seen them for a couple of years. And they'd say things like, oh, are you still scavenging? Um, <laughs> no, oh, sorry. I meant I meant foraging, but but you could see that they felt about it. it just it slipped out <laughs> that I scavenge for a living. Whereas now it's not seen like that. It's, it isn't seen like the sort of thing that you do. That this sort of slightly desperate thing you're doing to to rifle around in the hedgerows or the woods to to get something to eat and even like to achieve this extraordinary trick conjuring trick of managing to make that seem like it's worthwhile so that high-end restaurants would pay you money for it. I think that they're particularly baffled by that aspect of it. But, but now, like I say, you know, it's got the value on it. So to, to me, it's like we, we moved now to, to part two, like that, that's, that's been established. The stuff's got a value. People basically know what it is. They don't think you're insane that, that you're gathering some weed from the hedgerow and eating it. They don't think that that's just completely 
off the scale and ridiculous mm. or, or sort of low life thing to do. And so at this point, we also have the other cult cultural trend going through very strongly, which is that people are becoming aware that what you eat has some actual crucial role in whether you live long or, or get cancer or even, you know, just, well, the people are just becoming aware of that, that diet is a really big, big factor. So I think now we can just come along with, them, with, with this message about the wild foods and we have a receptive audience. So just now I'm beginning to address the matter. Like I have lots of people living near me that would probably get switched onto this if I found a way to, um, to tell it. So, and then I was just about to start doing it. I was just about to start advertising in a village hall, come along here once a week or something like that. And then the COVID thing hit. So we've had to sort of work on like the, the, uh, the zine that I sent you and, um, and uh, some video projects, like I was telling you about last week, as, as ways that we can do this when we're not physically present. But yeah, working up towards it. Um, but, um, but yeah, what I'm trying to picture though is do you, do you sit around like in your house with a table at night and, and you're sitting there processing the stuff with all your family? Does that happen? Or, or are you getting oh, together? Oh yeah, it takes a lot of work. People don't understand how much work it is. But what you need is a revolution. You need some kids. You yeah. want to rip this away from the establishment. <laughs> Take it away from those rich chefs and yeah. bring it back to the people. That's what you need. That's, that's what you're going to have to encourage some kids. These guys have got something that's yours. Yeah. You need to take it back. You need to take it back. I don't know if old people, I mean, old people in the country probably would do it. But in the city, I don't know with all the influencers and all of that stuff if the kids are 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 tied into it quite yet so you're gonna have to look around for some kids teenagers who are mad about everything <laughs> remember when you were mad about everything <laughs> you need some of those get some of those who are are willing to say you know either hey what's your what's your conservation organization over there something england on natural england uh, best i'm best i'm yeah i'm i'm, I'm thick as thieves with them yeah well you need to say to the kids those guys don't want you to have what english people have always had forever and ever and ever what welsh people have always had what scots people have always had forever and ever and ever they don't want you to have that that and then you show them but it's really easy let's go out here and do this right and harvest and then you take it home now let's we don't want to waste it because you know that's a lot of work that we did um and that's you know the environment and we we want to want it to be there for us let's make sure we use this stuff and then you show them how to process it if you don't know how to process it, you got to find somebody who does, who, who can very easily run through it. Um, our stuff, some of it takes an awful lot of work to process it, and some of it does not. Some of it is, it's ready to go. So maybe start with the ready to go stuff, and then say one time, well, here, let's do acorns. Yikes. <laughs> you know, acorns are a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to hang on to that one. Keep that in your pocket for a while before, <laughs> before kids 
have to be shown how to do that. But um, it's, I mean, every day we're processing stuff. You, you harvest stuff and you, some of it has a very, very narrow window before it'll go bad. So you've got to, you know, harvest and then go process, process, process. And then you go out and you harvest some more. And maybe you're still processing the stuff before. So you've got to have enough room for all of that, right? You've got to have table space. And you've got to have somewhere where stuff won't get, you know, knocked over. And so it slowly but surely changes the way your house looks inside. Yeah. <laughs> um, or your, your uh, garage or your backyard and, and what you're doing with it starts to change. And people, sometimes they never even go out to harvest, but they come over to see what's happening at your house, right? And you enlist them as soon as they're there, like, well, if you're gonna be here, you gotta do something, right? So you show them how, this is here. Open this up here. Okay, lay that out, right? Flatten that thing, <laughs> do this, right? And you just, when we're teaching somebody, we assume that they know absolutely nothing unless they show us otherwise, right? Just get them, get them doing the most basic things. Um, and if they come back, then you know you've got somebody, right? You've got somebody who probably will learn more and will go out on their own and will do stuff and will ask you questions. And um, there's a lady here at the farmer's market. Her name is Karen. And she, you'll like this, the name of her business is called Sonoran Scavengers because wow. people, people immediately understood what she was doing, right? Uh, I said, that's a really regrettable name. And she says, I know, but people buy my stuff. <laughs> so she, she takes a lot of the, the stuff that can be harvested, like right now, Palo Verde, and makes it into muffins and cookies. And let me tell you, that changes a lot of minds right there as soon as they start eating these muffins and cookies. Because they, they know what muffins and cookies are, and muffins and cookies aren't dangerous, and they're not, you know evil and they're not you know all the horrible things so uh, that changes a lot she makes jams and jellies too same effect same effect so sunny savage is in hawaii and one of the things that she says to people is we only have 60 hours do you know what she means by that no they have 60 hours worth of imported food, everything that comes into cheap, yeah. So they're very, very dependent on the imported food. This is one reason you have to learn how to forage because the day will come when the ships do not. Yeah. And you'll be stuck. Isn't England in this in, in Britain the same situation? Yeah, I th there's um we we I think we import the you know the vast majority of what we eat is that right miles i think so i think i think yeah i'm afraid i don't know these stats like i might but i think we're, we're definitely at least um we're definitely about 40 percent importing anyway it's to do with the feeling of invincibility um on the on the back of a, a powerful empire and and having power in a sort of as a market in a global capital uh, capitalist world that you you lose the imagination, you know, it becomes impossible to imagine 
uh, not being able to ship all this stuff in. Mm. Um, so you can say it, but for someone actually to feel it in their guts and and um, you know think it's worth making provision uh, on on that score is is difficult. Uh, and then when exceptional things happen, like obviously COVID. When, um, when COVID started here, one of the first things we noticed was everybody going to the, the stores and buying everything so that this was the first time I think many people had ever lived through shortages or complete nothing for sale at the stores, which kind of fueled a lot of fear um, and since then, we've had a lot more people interested in foraging and wild plants and food and how to garden and how basically to just figure out a, a supply of food um, independent of any kind of market. Mm. I, I believe it's the same here. I believe a lot of people have... Um, um, you know gone gone and begun planting or at least planting fruit food um this spring I, I think the first thing people try here w would be like having an allotment planting vegetables growing them in their backyard and then um having them um so that's yeah same story well maybe one thing you could do is encourage people to garden and then teach them about what you would call buy crops which would be a lot of the wild stuff that'll either grow in the hedgerows or actually in the, the rows with your fields, formerly known as weeds. Yeah. Um, but you could say this is a wild thing and it grows out here and, and this is how it's did and this is what you do with it and how you prepare, you prepare it, you know, process it and stuff like that. Maybe that would be the the gateway to the full wild food experience kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think people, just people doing stuff together, because that's the thing that um, I'm, I'm sort of coming to realize that um, as, as this has come up a few times, you know, the fact that foraging um, in its origins in, in the, you know, the kind of revival of foraging, um, most places it's a solitary pursuit initially it's it's somebody like me or you know one of the one of the, the other crowd of foragers around about just gets interested in it and starts doing it uh but the thing i'm thinking about more and more is is how how opposite that is and and you made the observation you said oh you know you guys go and forage on your own it's something we do together and just the, the just the potential that it has so not just weave together um, some kind of fabric between people and land, but at the same time to be weaving together this fabric between people and people. And, uh, you know, especially the, the, the sitting down and processing thing. Um, I, just, I just wanted to tell you a story, like early in the morning, it can be a bit edgy in my household. Um, you know, <laughs> kids are quite strong headed and, and I don't know, and we, we struggle sometimes to kind of get together uh, in, a, in, a, in a family dynamic that's, um, that sends everybody off on their way um, like they might do. My daughter will come down, doesn't know what, to, what she wants to eat, and she wants us to think about what she wants to eat every day. And we go through the same thing 
well, sweetie, if you tell us what you want to eat, we'll get you something. And anyway, there's various different things where um, there could be a bit more cohesion. So this morning, I was thinking about the fact that people used to sit down and just do stuff together. And that, that would have made a difference to the, to the dynamic. You know, you're all sitting in a room and instead of just chatting back and forwards or rushing off to do something, you're grounded in this space because you've got a job to do and you're all sitting there. So I want to show you what I did. So my, can you see this? My, my son is really into Lego. So, and he's got all these buckets like this. And when he wants something, he goes, he can't find it. So he tips it out. And then we have Lego on the floor for days. Um, so I'm trying to solve this problem in two different ways. One is to, you know, to help him organize his Lego. And two is have something we can sit there and do with our hands. And so this is, this is what came of it. We, we sat and picked out bits of Lego. And now we've got these beautiful little piles of uh, categorized Lego, which I sat and did that for a while. And, it, and it's just like you described. Kit came in and, and just joined in. He came and sat on me and, and started pulling this out. And I have to say, we had the best morning that we've had for ages. Because it all centered around this really sort of grounded thing of we're picking, picking Lego out of the bucket, finding the one it goes with. And, and it, just, it just created a completely different dynamic. So that, that's something I wanted to mention and just, just wanted to see if you, know, you recognize that. And it isn't just that you get the stuff done. It's something happens when people are sitting there using their hands that's, and- um, That's exactly the kind of stuff we do with the smaller kids. Yeah. yeah. We just let them come in and let them do whatever. And sometimes it can be pretty sophisticated what they're able to do. Sometimes it's not. And sometimes they'll partly do it and then run away, <laughs> go do something else. Um, but we don't force it. Yeah. And it seems to attract more. So I wanted you to see some of the stuff that we just finished with. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, these are Wahes. This is the tree that Oaxaca was named after. Um, Wahes are obviously a kind of bean, um, a legume, and these trees were when the uh, Spaniards or not Spaniards when the Mexican uh, people came up to Scottsdale, they planted these all over the place because the trees don't need any water and they're Reductive. Brilliant. Kind of can see it. It's a pretty long bean. Um, and the trees are only about 30 feet high. And then uh, what we're getting ready to do are the mesquite. This is the mesquite, another legume tree. Uh, the, the mesquite, uh, this, this is one of the most productive plants we have. Um, We'll end up with about two metric tons of that at the end of the season. Season goes all the way to the wow. end of summer, into how October. People, Mark, how many uh, are involved in, in harvesting that two metric tons? How many of you to get out and get that much? The two metric tons, that's just me and my wife. If I tried to tally up what everybody else was bringing in, I don't know. <laughs> that would be an awfully big number. Um, so just to say, David, while... while Mark tries to get back. Last year, I asked Mark about, you know, how much food comes off a given area of land. 
and that's what he's referring to there with the product productivity figures but like yeah that's jaw dropping two tons just for his household is productive enough for that really is getting started there he is okay um i didn't realize these things got moldy in the bag this uh this right here is one of the Palo Verdes that just finished. So these are the ones that when they're green, when the pot is green and the bean we inside got, We haven't got a picture at all, Mark, at the moment. We've got no picture from you. Oh, no picture? Okay. Well, anyway, what I've got, uh, I have in this bag, I've got these four different kinds of beans, the Waje and the Mesquite, and then the blue and the yellow Palo Verde. Yeah. Okay, so this is the blue Palo Verde. And they are, they start in April and they'll go all the way until August. Uh, we use them for flour. And then this is the yellow Palo Verde. You can see it's a very different looking thing. The trees themselves look very, very similar. Um, this, the yellow Palo Verde is the one that is, uh, when it's raw, it's like edamame. You can just eat the, slip okay. those little, you see the little bean, each bean. Mm -hmm. um, flip them through your teeth and eat them, and they're exactly like a sweet pea flavor or a, or an edamame soy flavor kind of thing. Yep. Um, so, yeah, we had several hundred pounds of that, and um, we'll probably have a couple hundred pounds of the blue flour when we get done, you know, milling it. Um, but yeah, the the so like the difference in the yellow verde and the blue palo verde really has to do with the, the ease <laughs> because the yellow you can just eat right off the tree right whereas the blue you've got to process that into flour and then you've got to store it at temperatures and in ways that you know you don't want it to go rancid or anything on you uh, there's a lot that's a lot of carbohydrates in there um and then these mesquites, the interesting thing with the mesquite, the pod is mostly carbohydrates, whereas the beans are mostly protein. Wow. So you can create a flour uh, of XYZ percentage of carbs versus proteins just by, you know, figuring out, well, I want 25% of this and 30% of that or something like that. Uh, so uh, this is... When I say we, we do a rough mill to get the pod off of there, and then that separates the beans out. And then you grind up the beans, which are pretty much protein, and then you grind up the pods, which are pretty much carbs, and then you add them back and see what effect that has on the flavor. Right. Um, and uh, you get your, you know, your various blends that you enjoy. Uh, this much carb, this much protein, whatever. Um, but these particular... this not a... Go ahead. Mark, these, these ones, because you, you're talking about the, the things that were... That were um, these are native, right? These ones. Uh, the, the blue Palo Verde, the yellow Palo Verde, the Mexican Palo Verde, and uh, the uh, three kinds of mesquites. Um, the velvet mesquite and the the uh, honey mesquite and the western mesquite are all native here. Yeah, so these, uh, the these could have been, I'm just saying that the, the, the tradition of using these, your, 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 what you do in terms of the flowers and things like that, 
that goes way back or it's 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 different right. so yeah um the all three of the palaverde is the mexican can you hear me yep yep okay the mexican palaverde the the blue palaverde the yellow palaverde have edible flowers and they have beans uh, the, the Mexican, really not very good. Um, so you're only using the flowers. Uh, yeah. The yellow, you can eat the beans raw or you can wait and let them go to flower and do, use them that way. The, um, uh, blue, did I do yellow? Yeah, the blue Palo Verde, um, it's pretty much because they go from being green pods to dried up pods super quick you just pretty much if you're smart you spend you you do the raw stuff with the yellow palo verde and you do all the other flower you do with the blue palo verde so um i mean we got those and while those are happening you've also got these acacia trees different kinds of acacias nine different kinds you've got the uh, ironwood tree You've got the uh, three kinds of mesquites. Um, you've got these introduced plants like the wahe. All of them are, are producing stuff. Um, so it's, I mean, I mean you, you just, you got containers, baskets and, and paper bags full of all these different ones. And you get them home and the first thing you do is figure out which it's triage, which things, um, you know, we process yeah. first. Yeah. Um, but you got to much get on it as soon as you bring them home. Um, if you like these, I, I just set them into this bag here. It's on, they've only been in there for a couple of days and, and they already got moldy in this bag. Um, so, you don't want, I mean, that's, that's horrible. That's a terrible thing right there. I'm going to feel bad now. <laughs> I mean, I think, Mark, you always inspire me to, to, to stop messing around, you know, because like, well, most of us <laughs> foragers in, in um, most of the foragers I know, I tell you what, we are, we are kind of hobbyists, really, and we're just dabbling. We, you know, we put a few green leaves down, we put a few wild spices in something we might put some stuff in some alcohol and make some jam but what you're doing with this sort of 75 percent 90 percent of your diet thing that's proper foraging as far as i'm concerned so you know i'm constantly feeling spurred to like i've got i've got i've got to up my game and you know start behaving like a i talk all the time about how foraging is is re-entering this behavior pattern of a normal organism to gather the food from where you are. But I have to admit, you know, my, my actual practice along those lines is pretty shallow compared to what you're talking about. But I wanted to, I wanted to um, just revisit something we talked about before, the, uh, the uh, plantain. And uh, uh, I have a bucket of plantain. Wow. <laughs> Look at all of that. Yeah, so that's, that's part of my harvest. But like I was sharing with, that, with you in that email, I harvested this all last September and it's just sat here dry and, and it's, it's not been, it's not been processed, but, um, because, uh, 
I have finally today got round to. So do you remember we talked about plantain last year, and you said that you put it in a Bosch um, yes. seed mill. Well, I never could get the, the same Bosch seed mill that you've got, but I got uh, I've got a blender at home, a, a machine at home, and you can reverse the blades. So it's it's like a blender, but you can reverse the blades and make them spin backwards, which means instead of the sharp bit hitting whatever's in there. It's the blunt bit at the back that hits everything in there. And look at the result I got. Yeah. So yeah. The, the, they knocked all the, all the husks off. So Mark was telling me last year, David, that, 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 that those guys use um, a seed mill on a, on a sort of a rough setting and it knocks all the husks off. But I put it in my blender and put it on, I left it for about two minutes and, and just let it spin backwards and it knocked all the husks off and then I should have showed some of the other stuff, but, but basically with all the husks off, I just took it outside and just kept dropping it and let the wind blow the husks out. And I left, left with this nice clean seed. But like, that's one of your harvests, right? So how much of that, how much of that do you, is that, is that, do you get a lot of that? Or is it just a little bit compared to these kind of big bean harvests and whatnot? Okay, so with plantain, we've got uh, the one introduced one and then we've got four uh, non or four native ones yeah, and yeah. Um, so partly we're we're eating the leaves yep um, and partly the root and then oh, wow. I've never eaten the root that's amazing wow yeah. and then the um, was that a dog <laughs> sorry no, dropping something sorry yeah. oh okay um, and then the um, the thing that you're calling the the uh, calf that's the stuff that you use to make the laxative. Yeah, yeah. And then the seeds, eat those. You don't want to lose the husk. You somehow separate it out and keep, and keep it. Yeah. And we end up with seeds. Now realize these are all, all different species mixed together. But okay. we have a five-gallon bucket from the local hardware store that we fill up with that. And once we're up there, we quit. Okay. We don't, there's, it's possible to continue on, right? And harvest. Uh, but you've got other stuff you got to go do. So yes. uh, with all of these, it's just like with the, with the uh, uh, mesquite, we pretty much top out at two metric tons because there's just too many other things to go after. Yeah. Um, all of the different foods, I mean, we just went through, that's why I sent you 140 pictures. We, we just went through probably the second most productive time of any year, which is the spring. And fall time will be the most productive time. And that usually for us starts at the end of July and goes through October. Um, and it's just like, well, okay, here's plant A and here's plant B and here's plant C. And plant A is having a banner year, so we better go harvest that. And maybe we won't get to plant B or only a little of plant B and maybe none of plant C. And we have to, we kind of have to do those calculations and think about, well, what do we want? What do we need? Um, our shelf life is about two years for a lot of things. So, if we don't do a particular plant in one year, we'll probably do it the next year. 
unless it's like cactus fruit. Cactus fruit are two-year sorts of things. So they'll have a good year and then a bad year and a good year and a bad year. And you got to harvest them in the good years. That's just the way, you know, it goes. And then things like pine nuts and um, acorns, they're three-year, four-year kinds of things. So you'll go for three years with nothing at all. And then you get a real good harvest. That's so you got to go get them when they're there. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, things like prickly pear and mesquite every single year is a good year. So you can uh, slack off on some of those guys um, for a particular year. Um, the plantain, uh, if we were having a really good year, like we had the last three years, um, we've harvested you know, that five gallon bucket and then stop. It's just too much, <laughs> too much food. This is why we're all fat. <laughs> Did you come across this, some stuff um, people have been talking about in the paper here, that vitamin K, especially vitamin K2, it stops some of the worst effects of, of COVID that people are dying from. So there's this thing where the, where the proteins break down in your lungs and that's why people are having difficulty breathing vitamin k2 especially um is involved in in repairing those those um proteins and um huh. there's this uh, japanese food called natto it's it's fermented soybeans oh natto yeah <laughs> this is natto you know it? yeah natto, i love natto okay well there's there's a place in japan where where people eat lots and lots of that i forget what the place is called but they've had a lot of cases of COVID in that, that area and they've had absolutely no deaths. So it does, it does look very strongly like this could be an answer. Um, but what they're doing now is they're running trials with vitamin K2 supplements to see if it makes any difference for people that have COVID. But it seems to me that everyone should just start eating natto because there's the evidence there in that place in Japan. Yeah? You can make natto out of any kind of bean. Yeah. It's any kind of bean at all. Yeah. 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 So you could, you can use uh, over there, they'll use uh, azuki, they'll use red beans, and they'll use um, mong, and they'll use, oh, there's another one. It's a whitish color. I'm trying to remember now. But anyway, um, but here, here in the Southwest, where beans originally come from, <laughs> we've got so many kinds of beans. And uh, you guys have them. You just think they're probably European food. The uh, navy beans and pinto beans and all of those originally came from here. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but you can make, you can make natto. That's, you pronounce it natto. You got to stop your, stop your throat. Not Oh, like that. Um, so anyway, uh, you can make it out of any kind of bean. Uh, you can make it in your house. It's just basically beans that sit. Uh, you know what koji is? Yeah, we've got some koji. It's koji culture, is it? Yeah. Wow. Aspergillus. Okay. Aspergillus. And uh, it's real easy to do. You just get your beans and set them out. Um, if, you, if you're not sure that you've got the right kind, I just tell people, well, go to the store, go to the Japanese section, get some natto that's already prepared, let it go to room temperature, throw that in with your own beans, 
yeah on your counter yeah keep it keep it in a thumb on the counter you'll get that as a starter that way and you'll know that you've got the right assholes for sure um and then just pull off beans you know as you as you want to eat them pull them out and just keep your starter there on your counter yeah all right so we will we will talk again soon yeah all right bye-bye bye So thank you for listening to this week's Worldwide Podcast. As ever, I encourage you to go to www.forager.org.uk forward slash podcast for the actual page for the podcast, which will give links uh, to other stuff for Mark and, and other things mentioned. And also you'll find the um, the Patreon button that I mentioned at the beginning, should you wish to, to support what we're doing. So I guess it just remains to talk about a plant of the month. So um, I think I'm going to talk about fat hen. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. I think I did anyway. But fat hen is now um, really bushy and uh, even beginning to put some flowers out. Um, so if you didn't get out there and find it already, it, it's worth looking out for and it's probably easier to spot now. You'll find it on any kind of fairly dry bare ground so it could be on the edge of a place that's uh you know been used to grow vegetables that hasn't been weeded too uh too enthusiastically or thoroughly um but you can also find it just um on the edge of a path even even on the edge of a road i wouldn't pick it from beside a road unless it's a very very uh scarcely used one that's worth mentioning that because fat hen and other members of the goosefoot family are, are a bit notorious for taking up heavy metals um and it's the sort of thing you could you could get away with i mean so you know do pick it from the side of a road once or twice a year but that's not something you want in your diet on a regular basis just just a little bit of food with with slightly more heavy metal in it than usual is not going to actually cause your overall heavy metal load in your body to spike dramatically um because I'm kind of getting onto another subject here, but the the fact is that that food does contain heavy metals, whether we like it or not. Um, so the point is just not to not to consciously bring something into your diet on a regular basis that's 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 got more. So anyway, um, you know, dry dry ground with with without much else growing on there, you you may well find fat hand. It's got opposite leaves; they're kind of diamond shaped. And it has this beautiful sort of looks like mealy stuff on the surface of the leaf, which is actually tiny little spherical hairs that cause the water to to run off it. That's that's quite a pretty thing to see. Uh, should you be around fat hen when it's raining or when you when you try and wash it when you get home? But anyway, you can you can take it home and use the the whole tops, maybe about up to ten centimeters long. They've got lovely succulent stems at the moment, and you can use them whole. Just cook them for maybe two or three minutes. Uh, steaming, I would suggest, so that you don't lose lots of the flavor into the cooking water as you would if you boiled them. And then just add a bit of butter and or olive oil and, and a little sprinkling of salt and pepper. It's absolutely delicious and really, especially if you get the 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 the, uh, the ones with a, with a nice succulent fat stem, fat hen with a fat stem, um, they do taste a bit like asparagus, a really, really spectacular green vegetable. And um, the bizarre thing is that fat hen is probably one of the most prolific agricultural weeds on the planet. And so vast amounts of money are spent every year um, all across the globe with people buying uh, herbicides to get rid of what is in actual fact uh, an amazing 
wild food resource which is growing um, against people's best uh, efforts to 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 get rid of it. So you know, uh, it's it's you could say the same about any anything that's been vilified and classed as a weed. But you know, here we are working against that vitality um, of of, a, of an edible plant which is trying to work on our behalf. I think we need to turn that one around and start um, working with you know if you are going to turn over soil. Which, which is controversial in itself, in order to grow things, you may as well reap the benefits of what spontaneously comes from, from the wild um, as a result of that activity of, of t- turning over soil and creating the bare ground that Fat Hen likes. Um, and I'll probably save it to another time to talk about Fat Hen seeds, which will be uh, coming when the flowers mature. But those flowering tops um, are nice too. So, so um, do, do also collect Fat Hen with the, with the flowering tops. They add a bit more texture. And it's important always to mention the, the nutrient side of things. Um, all the wild leaves contain a lot of vitamin C and vitamin A, which is great. Vitamin A, you need um, always to have a bit of uh, fat there, um, hence the butter and the olive oil, because otherwise your body doesn't absorb the vitamin A. Um, and also there's a great deal of calcium and protein um, in, in the fat hen leaves. So those, those are some of the benefits you'll get. And as Fred Provencer would tell you, like, there's also – a list longer than your arm of all the the, the uh, trace amounts of um, other micronutrients, trace elements, uh, medicinal compounds, in all of these wild leaves. So that's that's another reason just to eat um, as as much wild food as you can. And in fact, even though I've only mentioned one in this this uh, outro, as many different species as you can. All right, so that's it for this week's World Wild podcast. <laughs>